Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, kindle them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit and they shall be created. And thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. God who instructed the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady's seat of wisdom. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So our topic for tonight is the Masses and Sacrifice. But before we start, any uh, questions from last time? Uh, so last time we did transubstantiation and the real presence. Small Small topic. Right. So do, before we start this topic, does anybody want to ask anything about? Okay. Sir. Uh huh. Absolutely. Great question. So the question was, when Jesus celebrated the first Mass on Holy Thursday, before the night before his Passion, was that, did transubstantiation happen? And yes. And so you had this odd thing of Jesus sitting on one side of the table, let's assume. Uh, maybe they all sat on the same side. But, but in any case, Jesus sitting there, and um, in his natural... Sorry about, is this uh, bothering people? In his natural presence, he was sitting there at the table, and then he made himself present under the appearances of the bread and the wine that he passed around. And so he was in one seat, and then he was also received by everyone. And the, Eucharist, the transubstantiation makes Jesus present as he is. So now it makes Jesus present, risen from the dead, that night, it made Jesus present as he then was. But in either case, we receive the whole of him, his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity. Um, all right, does that? Right, the words had the same power then as they do now, right? Because that power comes from his divinity. Right? So the fact that he wasn't yet glorified didn't mean that he couldn't um, be transubstantiated because that's not ultimately coming from his humanity, but from his divinity. The power to make his humanity present under the appearances of the bread and the wine. Okay, any other question? Uh-huh. Yeah, on Holy Thursday, it was his not yet 
his body about to be immolated, but <clears throat> having the same uh, power which comes from being life. In other words, even before he rose from the dead, his body was the body of he who is the life, and therefore his body was life-giving as the body of the word, just as much on Holy Thursday as on Easter Sunday. Great. Any other questions? All right, let's start in the Mass as a sacrifice. All right, so I'm making this claim. The Mass, and so if, it, if we were to go back um, 16 or 1700 years in the early church um, and ask people, well, what is the Mass? Everyone would say, oh, the Mass is the Christian sacrifice, the sacrifice of the church, the great sacrifice. And if we were to do a similar survey today, we might not get such a unanimous um, uh, recognition of that. Right? And so I think in large part, that's been lost to our consciousness that the mass, if we ask simply, what is the mass? It's the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of Calvary made present in the church. Right? That's what it is. The real presence that we talked about last time is how it's, um, it'll enter into this, how it's the same sacrifice. Um, Jesus needs to be there for it to be his sacrifice. But I'll explain that when we get there. All right? But So what the Mass is, is a sacrifice. And how do we know that? How do we see that from Jesus' words? Let's say um, at the Last Supper. So, um, yeah, let's, so Jesus, when he's instituting the Eucharist, how can we see in his words that what he's doing is instituting a sacrifice? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, he says, this is my body given up for you. And that's a sacrificial language. Um, and he said something similar at the Bread of Life discourse in John 6. He said, my flesh is the flesh given for the life of the world. I and mean, that's the idea of, um, of a sacrifice um, given um, for, uh, yeah, for the life of the community and for the faithful. All right. And notice he doesn't say, we'll, we'll come back to this. He says, take and eat. And so we might say, ah, the mass is a banquet. Take and eat. And I think that's what's first in our minds. But he doesn't, he says, yes, take and eat, but this is my body given for you. He doesn't say right there, given to you. And it, it is given to us, but it's first given for us. How else can we see it's a sacrifice? Anybody? What's that? There, because there was no lamb, is that what you um, well, we don't know that there was no lamb, actually. So that's a whole question in itself. But we can, um, in the, um, it's true, he's the true lamb, but there may have been a lamb at the Last Supper, um, which would have been a f pointing to him as the true lamb. So when he, in the chalice, he says, this is the chalice of my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
Right, so that's what makes it, so that, that's what happened in Israel when a sacrifice was offered, right? Um, if you take the Paschal lamb. The lamb would be, um, each family group had to bring a lamb to the temple on the Passover, the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, and um, the priest would um, cut the throat and the blood would be poured out, right? And then that blood was gathered in a basin and poured onto the, onto the altar. And the idea would be that this somehow worked for the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus says, this is my blood poured out, that's sacrificial language. And then especially when he adds, for the forgiveness of sins. Right? And poured out for many. That's also a reference to John 50, I'm sorry, to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. And that's also sacrificial language. Okay. And he says it's the blood of the covenant. What's the is the relation of covenant and sacrifice? Yeah, exactly. So every sacrifice, I'm sorry, every covenant between God and, and Israel was sealed by a sacrifice. We see it at Mount Sinai, right? The foot of Mount Sinai, Moses has 12 bulls sacrificed, one for each tribe. The blood, half of it poured out on the altar and half sprinkled on the people. And that was to show that the covenant was binding together God and his people um, in a sharing of life, in a sharing of his life, right? The blood representing life and the blood consecrating representing God and his life. So we, and we could see something similar in the other covenants that um, were celebrated to restore that original Mosaic covenant. And even the covenant with Abraham, likewise, was done with sacrifice. And, so, um, and that would be something that primitive peoples would have understood. And, and I'll, get, I'll explain in just a minute why that is. All right, so the reference to this is the blood of the new covenant, or the new covenant in my blood, that's sacrificial language, okay? And then one last thing, which at first sight maybe doesn't seem to us like a sacrifice, but that would be, do this in memory of me. That's also sacrificial language because the Passover in Exodus 12, where the Passover is described how the Israelites are to celebrate it, it's said to be a memorial sacrifice done in memorial of the first, um, ex of the original Exodus. So do this as a memorial of me is, is a particular kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice commemorating the foundational acts of the covenant, okay? Right, so that's in the, the language of the, the institution. Um, and then we see the same thing, and I won't go through this, but in the fathers of the church, if we were to look at it, and they all say that the mass is the realization of a prophecy, a prophecy by Malachi which is that um, from the rising of the sun to the setting, um, the Gentiles will offer a pure offering to my name. And that, that's a strange prophecy if you're a Jew, because what do Gentiles offer? Uh, idolatry, abomination. And so the prophecy is from the east to the west, from the rising of the sun to the setting of it, the Gentiles are gonna offer um, a pure sacrifice. And so the fathers of the church say, that's what the mass is. That's a prophecy about 
the sacrifice of the mass offered right now today from the rising of the sun to the setting by every nation in every language and it's the one pure sacrifice. Okay. So let, and we could multiply testimonies from the fathers but I'll spare you because we'll run out of time. So let's grant, okay, granted that the mass is a sacrifice, what is a sacrifice and why do we need it? All right, so that's what I want to focus on right now. Okay, and so um, to understand what a sacrifice is and why we need it, um, it's helpful to think about um, religion. Um, so when we s speak about religion today, I think most people think, well, wh what do you think of with the word religion? Okay, theology is about religion. Religion is like our practice, our active practice of our faith, or the way that we live it out. Okay, all right, so we might think that religion is, um, well, that's a, that's a good answer, actually. So I think most people tend to think of religion as a um, kind of institution, right, as some um, different religious institutions, different religious rites, et cetera. But for the classical philosophers, Religion is, first and foremost, a virtue. It's a virtue by which, um, so a virtue is, is a habit by which we do something good, and religion would be a part of a bigger virtue, justice. So justice, the virtue by which we give to each one their due. So what would religion be? A virtue by which we give to God his due. There's a problem though. Can we do that? <laughs> it seems like we can't. We can't give to God what to actually do to him simply by ourselves. And so it's, it's, it's a virtue to try even though it's gonna be an imperfect kind of virtue because we can't perfectly give to God. In fact, that's, we, I mean, we fall infinitely short of giving to God his due no matter how hard we try by ourselves. But nevertheless, it's virtuous to do so and it would be um, the opposite of virtue, which would be vice, to not care, to not try to give to God his due. But then, all right, so next question. Well, what's due to God? How can, can something be due to God? Well, he made us, right? And so what would be an obvious thing that's due to God? From us. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. But like, mm -hmm. okay, he's given us our lives and so we have to order them. So that would be, um, so ordering our life back to him would be to do to him because he made us for that, to have him as our end. So it's due to God that we love him above all things. Right? That's due to him because um, if we were to love something else more than God, We'd be loving what's in effect a clump of earth more than the creator of heaven and earth. Um, so it's due to who he is, infinite goodness, right, that we should love him above all things. What else is due to him? Yeah, that we obey him because, again, he's made us, 
He's made us for himself. And so if he gives us a commandment, right, it's due to him as the rightful authority over us that we try and follow it, right? So obedience would be. So love, obedience, service, right? And that would go together with obedience. In other words, to serve him and his, his will. Hmm? Praise, simply praise for who he is, being the Lord, the infinite good. Thanksgiving, right? So Thanksgiving would be another of those things. So we could say that um, the purposes of prayer in general or of religion are those to praise or adore him, um, to thank him, great, to ask, right? So supplication or petition to ask for the things that we need. That gives glory to him, that we recognize that he's the provider and that we're the needy, all right? And then there's a fourth thing that usually goes there. Atonement, um, or we could say contrition. Atonement, uh, contrition, satisfaction for sin. So in Eden, they would have had the first three purposes of sacrifice, but once sin entered the world with the original sin and all our personal sins, now there's a fourth reason to, um, well, we could say for prayer in general. Um, So those would be things due to God. And this last one, because sin offends him, and so we need to do something to make satisfaction for the sin, and the first thing is to express our sorrow, having offended him. Okay? All right, so those would be four things due to God um, just by the fact that he's made us and we're his um, we're made for him. All right? Um, and so we can do these things by prayer. There's a um, uh, right, we can act is one way to abbreviate this. Adoration, Contrition, thanksgiving, supplication. Okay, all right, so we could ask, well, maybe we can do all of these things in a purely interior way in prayer. Is there any need to do them exteriorly or publicly or socially? Yes, why? Okay, um, but can we give any answer other than authority? Okay, sin has a corporate element, right? So when we sin, we don't just sin by ourselves, but it touches so many more people than we imagine. Um, so, the, so yes, there should be a, a social public dimension to that, but for all of them in general, yeah, excellent. It's, we're social beings, right? So it's part of our nature to be a social being, and therefore it's due to God that we do these things. We adore him, we thank him, we ask for things, and we um, express our contrition for sin, 
and seek to make satisfaction, that we do them not just each one in our own corner, but that we do them together, socially, publicly, as well as privately, both. Because right? that's part of, part of our nature is, yes, we have interiority. And so we have to do them in our heart. Right? And so if we just did them socially and not in our heart, that would be an abomination. But if we just did them in our heart and not socially and publicly, that wouldn't reflect our nature. And it wouldn't bind us together. I should have said something earlier. So the very word religion means, comes from what? Anybody? In Latin? So the re, to re-ligare, to bind. So religion etymologically means to bind back. To bind back to whom? To God. Right? And so the idea is um, we're made for him, but sin has um, cut us off in varying degrees. And so religion, the task of religion, is to bind us back to God, but also to bind us back to one another um, by having a common... Um, Religion is giving to God, but um, by all of us giving together to God, that binds us together more firmly in community. We'll, we'll come back to that idea. All right? So for, if that's true, or granted that that's true, that um, what's due to God is that we express our adoration, our thanksgiving, our supplication, and our contrition publicly, there has to be some public way of doing that. And what is that? public way of doing that, that we find in every society, sacrifice. Right? So that's what, basically, a sacrifice is an outward sign of the inward acts of adoring, thanking, um, petitioning, and um, making satisfaction for sin to God. So, but it's an outward sign of an inward sacrifice. So in every sacrifice, there are two parts. There's the sacrifice of the heart, and then an outward sacrifice that's offered exteriorly, visibly, publicly, socially, um, expressing the inward offering. All right, does that make sense so far? There's a famous definition of, of St. Augustine of sacrifice. He says that the visible sacrifice is the sacred sign or sacrament of the interior sacrifice. And that every sacrifice is something that we do in order to cleave in fellowship and communion to God. Right? So it's a sacrifice, it's, uh, it would be, it's an outward sign of an inner self-gift to God that we give him in order to cleave to him, to be bound back to him, which is what religion means. Okay? Now if we, so let me throw out a question here. Um, is sacrifice, uh, uh, is it necessary for human beings to offer sacrifice? Necessary in what sense? Does it belong to natural law that we offer sacrifice to God. 
in a similar way that it belongs to natural law that we not kill an innocent or that we not steal or that we not or that we honor our, our parents. Yes? No? <laughs> so what, no? Do you want to say an argument? Why not? What's that? Okay. <laughs> Obviously, any particular way of doing it doesn't belong to natural law. Okay, but um, honor your father and mother, doesn't that have to be willing to? Yeah. And what about the first of all the commandments, to love God above with all our heart, mind, and soul, that has to be willing. So there's nothing incompatible with something having to be willing and it actually um, be something that is due in some way. There are different ways that things can be due. So St. Thomas Aquinas argues that it is part of natural law that sacrifice be offered to God, but that the particular way in which it's offered is left to different, is, um, different societies, and in this particular case, um, what we're going to talk about, to Jesus Christ, to establish. Right? So um, in Israel, God himself established the way that they were to offer sacrifice. But the peoples around Israel, did they also offer sacrifice? Yes. Is there any culture that we know about other than our own that doesn't have an awareness of a need to offer sacrifice? Not that I know of. Right? So if, if you, um, I don't, any society that you find that's human society, there'll be, I mean, it's almost certain that there'll be some institution of priesthood and some form of sacrifice offered. So the very universality of the practice of offering sacrifice shows that it's, it seems reasonable to think that this belongs, this is written on the heart and that the human heart can understand that this is somehow due, even though the ways of offering it have differed and often been abominable, such as offering human sacrifice or something like that. All right, so the Aztecs get wrong the way in which it's to be offered, but they do understand that something should be offered. All right, why? All right, so that's one argument from the universality of it. Just an example of this. I don't know, did I tell this here? Um, I w lived in, um, in the Holy Land for a year, and um, we took an, um, an expedition to Jericho, which is one of the oldest cities um, that has been archaeologically um, explored. And so there's a, um, they've dug like this elevator shaft through the different levels of the city of Jericho. And so at the lowest level, it's about 7,000 BC from carbon dating. And what did they find at that lowest level? An altar. And so that's just typical. That wherever you find human culture, you find some evidence of religion, and in particular, sacrifice. Right? So even something like the cave paintings, those cave paintings probably went together with some kind of offering of sacrifice. All right, but that still doesn't answer our question, why it's necessary, but we've already really done it. It's necessary because the internal acts are due, and we said we're social beings, and therefore some social expression of those interior acts 
is due to God because of our social nature, right? So that's really the, the reason. It's a way of acknowledging our dependence on him, right? So that's supplication, our need to thank him for having received everything from him, our simple, our desire to praise and adore him, and our need to offer him something, even if infinitely inadequate, to make satisfaction for sin. All right? Questions on that? Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Um, in some ways, so something like um, Zen Buddhism um, doesn't have a, the offering of sacrifice. And in some ways, they would say, I think, that it's not uh, practice. So I have a friend who's a, um, a Buddhist priest, and he doesn't offer sacrifice. It's true. But the, it's, they offer some, some kind of service, but they don't understand it as sacrifice. But I think it's in part, they think of um, their practice as in some way, um, it's not directed to that. Right? It's in some way philosophical. Um, but anyway, that's a good question. I don't, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, yeah, in the Zen context, the sacrifice wouldn't be doing these, um, but it would be recognizing my identity with, with the divinity. So it's really a form of some kind of pantheism in the sense that they would say individuality is an illusion, and so I have to um, recognize my oneness. If one, um, granted that one recognizes that I'm not identical to God, right? in other words, if one is not a pantheist, then this becomes evident. Um, does that make sense? Right? If I just think that everything is one and that there is no God who is to be adored distinct from myself, then I'm not going to offer sacrifice. And so it makes sense that there isn't sacrifice in that. Uh, great question. Okay. Um, Right, so what, how can we, def so we've given some kind of definition. Um, if, uh, granted that we said that sacrifice is a public dimension, who should offer it? If we say, well, everyone can offer sacrifice, then it would again become something purely individual. So the very fact that we're saying that this is something social and public means that there should be someone to offer on behalf of the whole society. And so sacrifice and priesthood go together. Right? Wherever you find sacrifice, or I, again, maybe I should be careful of speaking too absolutely, um, just about wherever you find sacrifice, you'll find priesthood. In other words, an institution 
by which someone offers on behalf of the whole of society. So in the, I can't find the text, but in the, um, in the letter to the Hebrews, it speaks of the, the priest as one who offers um, oblations to God uh, on behalf of society. So one chosen from among men to offer oblations and gifts to God. And so the task of a priest is to offer sacrifice. And it actually goes both ways. So the priest offers sacrifice to God, but at this, by doing that, and by fulfilling these four purposes, the hope is to win his blessing, right, to win the blessing for the people. So there's two dimensions, um, an ascending and a descending dimension to sacrifice. Right, it's offered up, but the whole point of offering it up is to win God's favor and blessing and his grace. Right, so in every sacrifice, we could say there's an ascending offering and um, a descending blessing or gift from God to us. And so the priest, his job is to mediate in both directions. All right, so to offer on behalf of the body and to win for the society those blessings from God. All right, so we find sacrifice and priest. Uh -huh. No, please, it's great. To win blessings. We can't win anything from God. God. Right. Great. And so I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. No, that's a fantastic question. Um, in some way, yes, we're talking about meriting. That makes it even worse, right? Uh -huh. um, but here's the truth in the objection that what we offer and what the blessing that God gives is unequal. How unequal? Infinitely unequal. In the, we're talking about in the natural religions of the world, right? So what's offered in the natural religions of the world? Or even in Israel. Let's take Israel. Lambs and bulls. The blood of lambs and bulls and goats. And what's one? God's grace. All right. That doesn't compute. In other words, um, so it's true it, that what's offered can't merit God's blessing and will fall infinitely short of meriting that blessing. But nevertheless, it's offered in some way so as to, um, I don't know what the right word is, um, to receive that blessing through his mercy. All right? So in, um, we could divide um, into three, so the, the religions, the natural religions of the world, the pagan religions, then Israel, and then the church. And so we'll look at, so in all three of those, we find sacrifice, priesthood, and um, a blessing given. Right? So in, in Israel, um, God stipulates the sacrifices, right? but he promises by virtue of the covenant that he will forgive sins, that he will bless the people, that he will even give them prosperity temporally if they're faithful. Right, that's part of the covenant. And it, yes, it's totally unequal, and therefore not due injustice to the people, right? because we're offering 
something infinitely less than what he's giving. But nevertheless, God establishes a covenant by which we give what we can, and he gives what, what's proportionate to him. All right. um, in the new covenant, things change. Why is that? Because in the new covenant, um, we have a better priest and a better sacrifice. Right. Understatement. So let's look at that now. So our priest is someone who can properly mediate. The priest in the natural religions of the world or in Israel weren't, were mediators, right? So that Aaron was established as a mediator with God, right? to mediate in this kind of way. Um, but the problem is Aaron's on one side. A mediator is one who goes between. Do we talk about this? No? Okay. So I get confused what I teach and where. And, um, so a mediator stands between two extremes, right? And should reconcile the two extremes. So a mediator between God and man is one who can go back and forth, as it were, reconciling man who's become estranged from God through sin. But in order to be a perfect mediator, you have to stand um, perfectly between in such a way that you touch both extremes. Right? And so no human, merely human priest can actually be a perfect mediator. Um, and in the same way, um, the priest is offering an exterior sacrifice. And that exterior sacrifice, likewise, is going to fall infinitely short of being equal to the blessing that God's going to give. Right? And so whether it's in paganism or in Israel, both the priest and the victim, let's call this the victim here, the, the animal that's offered, um, doesn't do the job properly. God makes a covenant by which he accepts the inequality. And he establishes that he's going to bless us. But what we're giving him is infinitely less than what's due to him and infinitely less than what he's giving to us. All right? But in the, in the new covenant, we've got a high priest who actually touches both ends by being God and man, by being the word made flesh. And so he's able to mediate in a way that no other priest could. Does that make sense to everyone? And this is one of the reasons why he became man, we said. Or maybe I didn't say that here, but um, that's one of the reasons of the incarnation is so that by, as man, he could mediate Whereas God, he's the one to whom mediation needs to be made. All right? And then the second thing is, um, he's able to offer a, a victim, which is himself, which has an infinite value. All right? so, so let's look at the sacrifice of Calvary as the one perfect sacrifice of human history. So in every other sacrifice, you've got um, a priest who's not really, a per who can't be a perfect mediator. You've got a victim that doesn't atone and make satisfaction and is a mere symbol of something else that's imperfect, and that's the imperfect sacrifice of my heart, of all of our hearts, right? So all of those things being imperfect. Um, in Calvary, we have a priest who offers himself, not something else, and what he offers is infinite, his own life, and the love with which he offers it is likewise infinite. 
and he's perfectly one with the one he's offering it to, his father, and he's made himself one with us by becoming man and becoming our new, the new head of mankind, the new Adam. All right, so the sacrifice on Calvary is the one sacrifice that actually does this. In, uh, in strict, all right, this may be sound weird at first sight, in strict justice, what do I mean by that? To make a satisfaction, you want to offer something that's more pleasing than the offense was displeasing. So that's, if, if we offend one another, we would likewise want to do that. I'd want to, if I offend my wife, God forbid, I would want to give her something that's more pleasing than my offense was displeasing. Um, but the problem is we can't do that to God because our offense has this certain infinite amount because we offended God who is infinitely good, infinitely loves us, gives us everything, um, et cetera, et cetera. All right? And so we can't offer anything in sacrifice that would atone, nor anything that would properly praise him or thank him. Um, and so, yeah, human sacrifices done outside of Christ fall short, but Christ offered something that was super abundant, was did properly praise God, did properly thank him, did properly ask for everything um, in such a way that what he's giving is more than what we're asking, and then was more pleasing than not, not his sin, which he had none, but that our sin and all human sin from the beginning to the end of history was displeasing. Right, so the sacrifice, but let's, somebody might make an objection. Was that a sacrifice on Calvary? Well, it fits our definition. Something done, something given to God in order to cleave to him and to be bound back, yes. So Christ gave his life, not just for him to be bound back, but for all mankind to be bound back to the Father. And so yes, it's a sacrifice, and in fact, it's the one perfect sacrifice. Right, so in this, yeah, so in this case, this properly does now merit this. I used that word win or merit before improperly because nothing given, even in Israel, could possibly merit God's blessing because that blessing means, so what is that blessing? That blessing is fundamentally God giving us grace. And God giving grace is giving something infinite because grace is a sharing in the divine life. So the, this blessing here, which is grace, is something infinite. But it, Christ's sacrifice merits this infinite gift in strict justice because this is worth actually more than this. Christ's life is the life of God directly. This blessing is a sharing in that life. So Christ gave a sacrifice that actually merited in strict justice the giving of grace to mankind from the beginning of human history to the end. So every grace ever received by anyone ever 
was merited at one particular moment, right, on Good Friday, by Jesus Christ on Calvary. And nothing else ever properly merits, and you're absolutely right to object to that. Thank you. Wow, great question. Net, okay, did everybody hear? So was it necessary that God become incarnate to, to do this? To, and so necessary can be taken in two senses. Necessary in the sense that otherwise there could be no salvation, or necessary to make a perfect atonement. So if you say the second one, yes. If you say the first, no. So God could have just simply said, all right, look, you can't do this perfectly. I'm just going to accept your finite offerings and your imperfect priests and so forth, and you do the best that you can, and I'll give you the... That's basically what happened in Israel. But to, to redeem us in justice, in other words, by an equality, that, yes, required God becoming man, becoming our priest, and sacrificing himself for us. So to redeem us perfectly, yes, it was necessary that, that's St. Anselm's argument for why God became man. He could have, he could have, yeah, he could, no, no, he could have said that. He could have done, he could have just said, look, because I'm the offended party, I'm just going to let it go without any satisfaction. But that wouldn't have been as good because, yes, that would have been merciful, but the, the best form of mercy is when you allow the person that you want to benefit to give something back. So if God simply forgives and says, you go scot-free and you don't have to give anything back, that would actually be much less mercy than allowing us to give something back, which would be less mercy than allowing us to give something perfect back. So the best, the best redemption is in which he doesn't simply forgive the sin without an atonement, but he himself comes to make the perfect atonement. All right? So strictly speaking, necessary, no, but necessary to do it perfectly, yes. In other words, to do it in justice. Right? Because... All the grace that we, that's, that we personally received or that mankind has received has been merited in strict justice on Calvary. If Christ hadn't come and hadn't done that, God could still have forgiven us, but that no grace would ever have been um, merited. Why is that important? Because merit enables us to participate. All right, it's not us principally, it's our head who's done it. But our head has made himself put himself in solidarity with us, Jesus Christ. And so mankind is doing it, not in us, but in him. In him, all right? But he allows, we're going to talk, so next class, we're going to talk about how we participate in making the offering. So he does it perfectly, and he allows us to share imperfectly in the same offering. Okay? Great. So on Calvary, the, the sacrifice that Christ offered also has it, um, so it's perfect in the ways that we said, and there's this beautiful Trinitarian dimension. It's, we've got, our priest is God the Son, 
offering the sacrifice to his father, God the Father, and what's one is the blessing of the Spirit on us. Right? So this... So the, the sacrifice of Calvary is also in some way a Trinitarian event. The Son offering himself to the Father to win for us um, the blessing of the Spirit that configures us to him and allows us to join in the offering. We'll talk more about that in the last class when we look at communion. All right. Questions on that? So let's look now, or let's, let's take a break, a brief break, and then we'll look at this question. Um, all right, we looked at the sacrifice of Calvary. It might seem, if, if what we've just said is true, Christ offered the one perfect sacrifice and merited grace for every human being from the beginning of history to the end. We're done. So why do we need the mass as a sacrifice if Christ offered once and for all the perfect sacrifice that did all of these things. All right, so I'm going to leave you in suspense there, and we'll take a five-minute break. Okay, so let's go to our question that we just posed. Um, it seems like from what we've just said, we've actually made the Mass seem superfluous because Christ on Calvary offered the one perfect sacrifice that every other sacrifice in some way was merely a type of or a figure of or a preparation for or... Um, and so certainly the, the sacrifice of Israel, um, the letter to Hebrews says, I mean, the blood of lambs and goats can't do what, a, um, can't win the forgiveness of sins in justice, as we've said. Right? And so Christ's sacrifice alone does it. So I think many Protestants would naturally think that, therefore, once Calvary happened, sacrifice is finished. And there ought not to be a sacrifice in the church because Calvary did it. And there'll be the, this is one of the few things that basically the whole Reformation was united on. And there are all kinds of disagreements about what we did last time, the real presence, right? So Luther defending the real presence, we didn't get into it. Um, others, like Zwingli saying it's just a sign, and then various different views, et cetera, and huge fights. But all Protestants were united in one thing, the mass is not a sacrifice, and that's the greatest blasphemy to think that it is. And the principal reason given, because Calvary was a perfect sacrifice. Christ died once and for all, and we're done with sacrifice. I said, what sh how should we respond to that? Is that right? Clearly, it can't be right if we go to mass still, and the church obliges us to go. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a minute. So, um, uh, Olivia. Fantastic. That's exactly what I was looking for. So um, if, if it really were true that Christ's sacrifice now has 
um, set us free from sacrifice, and so the religion that he inaugurated, the new covenant, would be a sacrificeless religion, that would be really weird. In fact, would be the total opposite of everything that we said in the first hour, because we said that we have this obligation, it's due to God, not just that somebody have offered a perfect sacrifice, but that we do it, because we are the ones who have to adore, thank, ask, and express our contrition. And so it would not be a perfection of religion if Christ abolished sacrifice. And so what ought he to do if the new covenant is the perfection of religion? Give us a perfect sacrifice. And therefore give us the same sacrifice that he offered 2,000 years ago for us to offer today. Right? So an hour before class, we had mass upstairs here, right up here, and the same sacrifice as Calvary was offered here and throughout the world, etc. And, and the problem, again, is we take it for granted because we can't take in something so awesome. But, um, so, so Christ instituted the mass because we weren't there. He had, Mary was there, John was there, and that's about it. And the, the other two Marys and a few other disciples. Um, and um, so the perfect sacrifice was offered, yes, but not all people participated in that perfect sacrifice. And even if um, all mankind had participated once, that still wouldn't be enough because sacrifice is one of those things that we want to give um, frequently because we frequently need to do this, not just once in a lifetime, right? But we need to adore him daily. All right, I'm not saying we have to go to daily mass. That's a good thing. But, um, but clearly, to do that with some regular, that's why the church gives us a Sunday mass obligation, right? Because we need to do those things, adore him, thank him, and ask for our needs and express our contrition for sin um, frequently, all right? And, and so Christ hasn't left us sacrificeless. What he's done is he's given us the one perfect sacrifice, all right? Does that, does that make sense to everyone? So John Paul II has a nice thing that he says about this in, um, so John Paul II has a great document on the Eucharist. Ecclesia de Eucharistia, his, just a year before he died. And in it he says, this sacrifice of Calvary is so decisive for the salvation of the human race, right, even that's an understatement, and that Jesus Christ offered it and returned to the Father only after he had left us a means to share in it as if we had been present there. Ah, that's magnificent. So he and on Calvary, he can say, it is done, right? It is consummated because he's given himself, he's given the perfect sacrifice, but he's also given us the means of sharing in it. And that he did the night before when he said, do this in memory of me. And the, the Council of Trent says the same thing. So the Council of Trent had to deal with this because the Reformation 
denied that the mass is a sacrifice and that it could be re Calvary could be represented in the way that we just said. And I'll explain that better in a minute. Um, so the Council of Trent um, it's, it has a great response. It says this, because his priesthood was not to end with his death, right? so the, the eternal high priest is eternally priest, and so because his priesthood wasn't going to die with him, because he was going to rise, at the Last Supper, right, um, in order to leave to his spouse, the church, a sacrifice, a visible sacrifice, as our nature demands, right? we said it's part of natural law, by which the bloody sacrifice that he was about to accomplish on the cross would be represented. Right, so the Council of Trent uses this word, re, so I put a hyphen in there, though, to, because when we hear represented, we might think simply of a stage and a, um, some kind of drama in which it's a mere sign. But if we think of it in the full sense, represent to make present again, right, that's how we should understand it. I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Um, so the, the night before he died, he didn't want to leave his church, his spouse, without a sacrifice. He, he instituted this one um, to represent Calvary until he comes again. Right, so until the second coming, he's given us um, the mass to make Calvary present again on our altars every day of the church's life, right? And in every place and in every time. So how does it work? How can we say it's the same? What would make, what would make two sacrifices the same sacrifice? Okay. <laughs> okay, and um, Mary? Okay, yeah. So let's take in Israel, the, the, the Passover. Is it the same sacrifice um, year after year, or even two different families? Would that be the same sacrifice? Not really, right? Because they'd be different lambs offered. So it'd be different victims. So in order for two sacrifices to be the same sacrifice, what would you need? You need the same victim. And you'd also need the same priest. And then you'd need the same purpose, I guess, also, or the same intention, we could say. Let's put that in here, the, the same intention of the priest. And the same effects. All right. So in order for Calvary to be made present, Again, we need to have the same victim on the altar. All right, that's what we did last time. That's why the real presence is so important. If you take away the real presence, you take away the sacrifice of the mass, certainly, because we would have a different victim. We'd have bread, 
instead of Jesus Christ. And no way that would be the same sacrifice, and no way would that have the same effects. All right? But if we have the same victim present on the altar by transubstantiation, then we've got essentially the same sacrifice on the part of the victim. And it's true, the priest is different. Today we've got a ministerial priest, but the ministerial priest, Father, whoever, Father Mason, whoever might be, um, he's acting through Jesus Christ, who's the eternal high priest. So in every mass, Jesus is still the eternal high priest, acting through the hands and lips of the ministerial priest. So it's true to say we've got the same high priest, even though we have a different ministerial priest. Okay? And we've got, obviously, the same intention. Jesus offers himself. He's, Jesus is the same um, yesterday, today, and forever. And his sacred heart has the same desire for our redemption and for his Father's glory today as 2,000 years ago. And the effects are the same. And we'll do that next week. All right? And the effect being the redemption of the world. Yeah accomplished through the mass. But I'll explain that later. So if you say like a, like a lean person versus lacking all four of those? Yeah, so in a, and the reason for this is because the validity of the Eucharist depends on having the right priest. Right? You need to have Jesus Christ as the high priest, and he will work through someone rightly ordained with the sacrament of holy orders. So you need the sacrament of holy orders to have the same priest. And if you don't have the same priest who is able to transubstantiate, right? Jesus can transubstantiate, but you and I can't. Um, we won't have the same victim either. Right? So this is the tragedy of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, in the Protestant churches, is that they're lacking the same victim and the same priest. And therefore, it can't be the same sacrifice as Calvary. Great. So do we have the same death basically, or passion? Um, and the answer is, the letter to the Hebrews says, Christ died once and for all, right, and dies no more. And this is a, an objection that Calvin and others make against the masses of sacrifice. There can't be another sacrifice because Scripture says that he died once and for all, and, and that's absolutely true. Right? So we don't think that he dies again um, today in the Mass, or that he's crucified again in the Mass. So that's a representation. And how is, how is his death represented in the Mass, symbolically? Yeah, yeah. So the fact that... Um, the consecration is first of his body and then separately of his blood. That represents what happened in Israel with every Paschal lamb. Right? You had the body and the blood separated out from the body, cutting the throat of the victim, pouring out the blood. Right? That's the immolation. Um, and so that's represented symbolically in the dual consecration. That's why Jesus instituted the, the mass under two species, 
that are separately consecrated to represent um, what happened physically on Calvary. And so we're not saying that that separation crucifies him again or kills him again because he rose and can die no more. Right? What got separated on Good Friday got put back together on Easter Sunday and can no longer be separated. And that's his blood from his body and his soul from both. Right? So on, on Good Friday, those three things got separated, his body, his blood, and his soul. Right? The body in the tomb, the blood poured out on the ground, and the soul went to um, the limbo of the just to, uh, to open the gates of heaven for them. Holy Saturday. Um, but rising from the dead, he rises never to be separated again. So we can't, so the mass doesn't kill him again physically. So it's not, so here, Calvary equals the mass, not in every respect. Fantastic. Right. Because he dies no more. But it's still the same sacrifice, essentially. Because we've got the same victim, we've got the same priest, we've got the same effects, but the death happened once and for all. All right? So the Council of Trent uses a phrase to express this. says, yes, the sacrifice is the same, but the mode of offering differs. On Calvary, it was offered in a bloody way, and in the Mass, it's offered in an unbloody way. Right? That unbloody way is a way of saying, um, by way of a sacramental way, by way of sacred signs, but not by way of a new death. Okay? Because that's the principal Protestant objection, right? According to you Catholics, you're immolating Christ anew. Um, which can't be, right? And that's true. It, it can't be, and that's not what we're doing. Okay. Questions on that? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh -huh. No, that's, that's very well said. That's, a, that's the way we should think about this. That, um, so how can one, so here's our question. All right, the mass today, we said, is Calvary, because they're the same victim, same priest, but how, do you, how can two events be the same when they're spread out, separated by 2,000 years? What does it even mean to... Um, to say this. And um, with an ordinary human act, it simply could not become present. So, so we said, all right, he doesn't die again. But is the event of Calvary made present today? What do we want to answer? Yes. The Mass makes Calvary present today, even though he doesn't die again. How can it do that? That's our question, right? And I think that's... In a way, sometimes I think about it, maybe you can comment on whether this is right or not, but in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how part of the sacrifice is not just the 
Mm -hmm. more important to present that in the sense that Christ did the same thing. He died in mm -hmm. time, uh, but then he like entered the tomb. Right, the letter to Hebrews? Right, he entered. Fantastic. I mean, I think that's exactly what we're saying, but we have the same priest today. We have the same priest today who has entered into a better state. Right? That's the letter to the Hebrews. He has passed through the Holy of Holies and ascended. Basically, his, that's speaking about his ascension into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father to make this offering present perpetually. And so we can speak of a heavenly liturgy that... Um, um, how should we say this? Um, the letter of the Hebrews speaks actually of three kinds of liturgy. The liturgy of Israel, which it says was a shadow. The present liturgy of the new covenant, which is the perfect image. And then the reality, which is the heavenly liturgy, where Jesus, for the blessed, they can see Jesus face to face, making supplication to the Father, Offering, think of there's a, um, um, the letter, um, the book of Revelation is all about this. The book of Revelation is about the heavenly liturgy. Um, there are all these images of this perfect liturgy. And um, we here on earth in the mass are in some way participating in what's happening more face to face in heaven. The mass on earth is the same in the way that we just said. We've got the same victim, the same priest. But there's this difference that it's veiled here. We don't see that priest, right? We see Father Joe or whoever it is. We don't see that victim. We see the appearance of bread and wine. We see a sign, yes, that the bread and wine are separated. But, um, but we've got the same reality as the sacrifice in heaven, just veiled. Right? Let's go back to... Um, so yes, Christ continues today to, to be a perpetual offering. But let's go back to that question. So Christ's acts on earth are different than other human acts. So could we say, I don't know, something like uh, an act of George Washington or, or Caesar crossing the river. Can that be made present later on? No, because it had a finite power that got, it's like, um, yeah, you drop a stone in a, in a and you get ripples that expand, and they might expand for a, some time, but um, that one act is not going to have the same force 2,000 years later. But if it's an act of God-made man, then it's different, right? Because the acts of Jesus Christ were acts of God and man together. And so here we're talking about the, Christ's act of giving himself on Calvary is an act with an infinite power of meriting and therefore an act that can touch and become present to every point in history in a way that, I don't know, Caesar across the Rubicon or um, the Declaration of Independence, whatever you like, whatever historical event um, can't do because it just has a finite um, goodness. Right? So Christ's um, gift of himself on Calvary, Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, is an event that um, 
has a power that isn't locked into that time. And this, we're going to come back to this. And that's why it, um, its effects are never exhausted. And so the, the effects of Calvary are unlimited. And we'll see next time. The mass applies those effects to our place and time. And so the mass is the means by which what he won on Calvary gets distributed to the world. Not the only means, but it's the ordinary means, the principal means. It is. Right. It's true of every moment, but not every moment. Sorry. Yeah. Um, all of the, every act of his life, his birth, his uh, being found in the temple, whatever, all the different mysteries that we celebrate, say, in the rosary or whatever, they all had that power of having right, of infinite effect, and they do have an infinite effect um, in some way, because um, our baptism is in some way a sharing in his birth as well as in his death, so the different mysteries of life have that power, but nevertheless, Calvary um, is special because it's the culminating act of his life. And so even though we want to say all of the mysteries of Christ's life had this power to, have, um, to be reproduced in us, to continue to live and never be exhausted, Calvary has it more because it's the defining act of his whole life. It's the culminating and consummating act. It's the giving to the end. So in the Gospel of John, having loved his own who were in the world, that's how he starts the Last Supper, he loved them to the end. And that's proper to Calvary. Right? That it's the whole of the gift. And so that's why that most especially has this power, even though we could say all of his acts in theory did. When, um, there's, yeah, the catechism talks about this. So the catechism in 1085, says this, his paschal mystery is a real event that occurred in our history, but it's unique. All other historical events happen once and then they pass away, swallowed up in the past. The Paschal mystery, Paschal mystery is just a term for the, the hope from the passion, the death, and the resurrection and ascension, basically. The, so the Paschal mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past because by his death he destroyed death. And all that Christ is, all that he did and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity and therefore transcends all times while being made present in them all. The event of the cross and resurrection abides and draws everything towards life. All right? So in that sense, yes, we don't kill him again, but that um, having the same victim, the same priest, um, makes it such that we can say that um, 
the event of Calvary is made present here in the Mass truly. Did I? I it, basically, um, it's something to pray with. Right? In other words, we want to, um, but it's, it's just simply saying it doesn't do the trick. Um, and then the Mass makes all of Christ present, right? So in the Mass, we could say, um, we've got the victim of Calvary, but we've got the victim who today is glorious. So the Mass makes present his passion, but also his resurrection. And it gives us the power in some way to participate in the offering of his passion. We'll talk about that next week. And to share in the fruit of the passion by receiving him who's now glorious. When does it happen? When, do, when is Calvary made present on the altar in the Mass? Yeah, the so just simply the consecration. Um, when his body gets present and his blood separately. That's what represents his passion, and that's what, um, that in a sacrament, what it represents is what it makes present. Um, and so Jesus' death is represented sacramentally when we get his body and his blood separate on the altar. Right? So that's, we could say, that's when the sacrifice occurs. And then you can see, what does the priest do right after that? He offers it to the Father, right? And he doesn't just, he says, we offer it, the whole church, and that means us. We'll talk about that next week, all right? So our next class will be on our how do we participate in that offering, and what do we bring to it, and is that important? And so our answer is going to be um, our whole lives, and yes, it's important, Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for having given us the gift of the Holy Mass through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.